we're in 2 Kings 6 uh, and 7. We'll be in there today as well. Um, really one thing to announce today and talk through. Uh, we have a beach hangout happening today at the Kirk Control Pavilion in Deerfield Beach. Uh, we rented the pavilion. We'll be there at 3.30. I might have said 4 last week, but 3.30. Everyone say 3.30. 3.30. Um, now, here's the thing. In case there's lightning and thunder, because it's Florida, and that can happen, um, why don't you do this? If you would, we're going to have like minute-to-minute updates from my understanding on uh, social media. So if you don't, you can follow us on Instagram. We should post to our story like, hey, lightning's happening or not happening. But we are on, right now, we are on. 3.30, we'll be at the, the uh, Kirk Control Pavilion. We'll have some drinks, snacks. We're going to do some volleyball. We have a volleyball crew and, you know, helping head that up. We'll have some like little sports games. We're just going to hang out and have a little beach day. Cool? That's today, 3.30, Deerfield Beach. Get some lunch, and then we go meet us at the beach. Um, man, we're in 2 Kings 6. Let me just uh, share this. It, it really did hit me, and sometimes it hits me at different points and times, but just during worship today, I was just reminded of, man, this is such a privilege. It really is. And I know we kind of hear that a lot. Or I, I'm so grateful for you guys. I'm so thankful for this church community and body. Um, just knowing you, so many of you just love Jesus dearly. And just, sometimes I'm like, why do we do this? You know, I get asked that question, like, why do we even have church? What is church? Man, it's so beautiful to see the body of Christ come together and just lift up the name Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to be Lord, truly Lord of all. And I feel like in those worship moments, we're just reminded, like, everything else we're pursuing. Like, does anyone else feel guilty when you're singing, you are my one thing? Like, you are my one thing. I go, oh, Lord. You know, I I love what A.W. Tozer said. He said, Christians don't tell lies. They sing them. Oh, and that hit me hard. Dude, Tozer just comes with fire. That's what Tozer does. He just writes fire every time, every time he wrote. But it, it hit me. I'm like, Lord, I don't, I don't want that to be the case. You know, obviously, the scriptures say it best. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that's one of those things where I feel like in worship, I'm like, Jesus, don't let me just be honored with my lips. Let this truly be a time we can come together and let our heart be close to you and knit, knit and join together to you and to the body. And um, there's just something about the bride of Christ coming together saying, Jesus, you are it. We love you. We need you. We can't do life without you. Equip us for the work of the ministry. Uh, God, let there be just you in our praise or in our fellowship, the times we hang out and just talk, that you be centered. So I just want to say this. I love you guys. I'm so thankful for you. I love the exchange. I love what the Lord's doing. Um, this is not per- the perfect church. It's very flawed. Um, and that's what the church is. It's a group of people who are not boasting in our righteousness, but in the finished work and righteousness of Jesus. And I just want to say I'm just so grateful grateful for you guys. It's so sweet to come here. Um, because here's what's interesting to me. We've been in the Old Testament for a while, and I want to say, well done. I'm proud of you guys. Sometimes Christians are like, why don't we ever go through the Old Testament? I'm like, you want to go through the Old Testament? All right, we're going to go through the Old Testament two years later, um, and we're still in Second Kings. And so here's the idea. This is so profound to me. It's been such a joy to walk through this. Um, the, this text I taught like 15 years ago, and I was just reminded, like flooded with memories of this text, because it is such a beautiful story story that clearly communicates the gospel. And you're like, Josiah, you say that every week. I know, that's just the way the Bible works. But hear me out. Um, so far, remember this. This is so important. As we've worked through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, now 2 Kings, do not get overwhelmed with all the kings and prophets. Don't get confused. It's a lot simpler than we think. We know that Israel was one nation, all 12 tribes under Saul, then David, then Solomon. Solomon was the last king to have the whole nation together. It split into two kingdoms. Rehoboam, his son, uh, we know that he went to the south. Jeroboam went to the north. The southern kingdom is called Oh, come on. It's been so, the southern kingdom is called 
Judah, the northern kingdom is called Israel, even though it should all be called Israel. I don't, I don't really like that distinction, but it's called Israel in the north, Judah in the south. There's two kings. There's different prophets that go to these different kingdoms. We primarily have been looking at the northern kingdom because after it's split, uh, we see a few different kings. We see Elijah come on the scene. He's constantly calling on Ahab and like the false gods of the north. Then Elijah raises up Elisha, and Elisha is also primarily ministering in the north. And we just see them like constantly being used by God. Here in 2 Kings, it's really interesting because it shifts from Elijah to Elisha. Now, Elisha seems to be doing the work in the ministry that looks so much like the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. I mean, the blind see, the dead are raised. I mean, miracle after miracle. It's like, it feels like we're in the New Testament, but we're in the Old Testament. Now, we're coming to a, a section, chapter 6, last week. If you remember, the title and the focus was Gaining by Losing. Gaining by Losing. There's this idea in the Gospel of, you want to gain, give it up. Do you want life? Lose your life. Like the, the gospel is just so different. People want to find their identity. Lose it. Let God give you a new identity. The, just the Bible is so different the way it works. And so in 2 Kings 6, you have the lost axe head. Then you have the Syrians who are blinded. They're led by Elisha into Israel's like camp. They could have been killed. And Elisha's like, we're not going to kill you. We're going to throw you a feast. They're, they're cured in a sense. They're healed of their blindness. They can see, and they should be wiped out. They were there to murder Elisha and eventually the Israelites. They should be wiped out, but instead they throw them a feast. Unbelievable story of the gospel. The king doesn't respond like we think, and here's where we come to in chapter 6. Uh, 2 Kings 6, if you look at verse 24, that's what we'll pick up today. But here's kind of the idea of 2 Kings 6 and 7. Um, chapter titles kind of frustrate me, like chapter 7, like, a lot of times they did their best to like make it flow. Uh, chapter 7 just continues the story of 2 Kings 6, verse 24. So we're going to look at chapter uh, 6, the end of 6, and 7 today. Cool? I think we can do it. Um, and just here's the idea. We're going to see some lepers, in a sense today, just come upon an amazing discovery. They stumble upon essentially everything the army left behind. And they say this phrase, and this is the, the hope in the title today. They said, this is a day of good news. A day of good news. That is our title today. This is the story of the Bible. It's not so much about what to do, but about what you and I have received. We have a day of good news. It's like, wow, look at what else God has done for us. We did not work for this. We did not deserve this. This is a day of good news. This is what they say in the Old Testament. They use the Hebrew word basora, which basically is the... the a Hebrew version of the Greek word euangelion, which just simply means good news or gospel. They're like, this is gospel. This is a day of gospel. And here's the idea. We gather on the first day of the week to celebrate the gospel. We are gathered together to say, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. You rose again. You conquered sin, hell, death. You've given us new life. This is a day of good news. Amen? And here's the idea. These lepers are going, we can't keep this to ourselves we have some good news. We cannot keep this to ourselves. We have to tell everyone who's about to die. This couldn't be more clearly a story of the gospel than 2 Kings 6 and 7. So it's long. We're not going to read it all right now. We will read it, but why don't we pray? You guys ready? A day of good news. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just pray. Ask the Lord to just be with us and speak. So Father, we just want to say thank you. Um, God, there is no one like you. God, we thank you that you did not just 
tell us how to fix ourselves or save ourselves, but you became one of us and you lived that life we should have lived and you died the death we deserved. And we just want to say thank you for the good news that is found in your son, Jesus. And Lord, I just ask that, um, I know our weeks maybe have been long or we're tired. God, we've had some highs, we've had some lows. God, I just ask that you would remind us again of this good news, that it would never become old news. It never become something we're too familiar with. Lord, help us see how truly broken and lost and desperate we were without you. And help us to see everything that you offer us in your son, Jesus. So we thank you. We ask that you'd be lifted up in your wonderful name. Amen. Um, I'm a sucker for a really good emotional Instagram story. I am. I don't, I don't know if you guys have been caught up in some of these stories. I feel like they know how to target me. But it's one of those, I, I love seeing those stories where it's like a military person who comes home and they walk into like the school or like a karate place and their kid's blindfold and the military dad is like, shows up and starts, you know, messing around with this kid and then like the kid takes a blindfold off and says, dad, you're dead! And they hug. Or it's like the spouses. I mean, I'm this, I'll be like in Starbucks alone just crying. I'm a, I'm a weirdo. Uh, that happens a lot. You're just like, you mentioned crying a lot. I know, I'm just weird that way. But I, I love that. Like, I love those stories. I think like all of us, we're a sucker for good news. If you guys remember, do you remember how just tough in every way 2020 was? Like right when I say 2020, some of you just get like PTSD. Like, Ugh. like 2020 was awful, man. That was awful. And we're almost in 2024. It's just bad. It's a hard, it's a hard year. All right. And I just remember thinking of like just the few months from the time the pandemic hit to the nation was just at odds. It was just so intense. And if you guys remember this a few years ago, during that time, John Krasinski came out with a great YouTube show called SGN, Some Good News. Do you guys remember that? We have a little photo. That's when it should pop up. It's okay. I don't know if it did or not. But I love this. Uh, the guy from The Office, he comes up. He's like, you know what? Everything on the news is just awful. Like, we need good news. And it's crazy how this, like, little 10 to 15 minute, like, YouTube video just took off. People were, like, craving good news. Like, it's everything. And you guys know, like, bad news sells and, you know, it just hypes up the emotions. And here's someone who's like, hey, guys, like, we just saw some kids play with some puppies. And you're like, oh, I love these videos. It was just, it was so great. Celebrities were getting involved. Like, they're giving, like, tens of millions of dollars away. Just story after story of, like, humanity helping each other. You're like, we're not all evil, but we are. But you're like, you finally see, like, some good news, like SGN. I love that. Some. Some. And even the idea of just, he had, like, it's so gospel. Some good news. We crave this thing called good news. The funny thing was, John, I think, sold this to some, you know, television studio for, like, tens of millions of dollars. Um, good for him. But it's crazy how, like, some good news, he, yeah, anyways, he sold it away. Um, but this is, like, missing. Like, we miss good news. We, we long for good news. We, we desire good news. I think in all of our hearts, you know, when you're like, we say, can there just be some good news? And it's, when it comes to the gospel, it's really weird because we maybe heard the word gospel, and that might mean something to everyone. You know, like, I've been at different churches. When you say the word gospel, it just means maybe the type of music, or maybe it's like some old thing that people used to believe. The word gospel has a lot of different, different connotations to it. I, I hope we can just get back to this idea of the word gospel. The word gospel, like, we say that, but it was a Greek idea and a Greek word. It was not really, it was never originally a Christian word. It actually was the word, like in the Greek, like euangelion, it was a word that was ascribed when they won in battle and they came back to their people and they said, we have gospel. We have good news. Like we have good news. We, we didn't die. We didn't lo lose the war. We won. We won. 
And this idea of gospel is that it's, we've won. Someone else fought this battle on our behalf and we won. Someone else fought this battle. We won. We have good news. And it's not so much about now go do this, but it's now, now receive what was done for you. Something was done for you. That's good news. Receive that. Believe on that. Walk in that. And we have to get back to this. So I want to look at this idea of, of this gospel because we really see this so clearly in 2 Kings 7. We see these lepers go, this is gospel. This is good news. We have something special here. And how dare we keep it to ourselves? That could be the worst thing ever is if we keep this good news to ourselves. We cannot do that. That's the one thing we can't do. So here's what we're going to look at. Uh, two points today. We're going to walk through the text. Number one is the problem. Number two is the provision. The problem is at the end of chapter six. We're going to read about the problem. It was an extreme problem. What they're going through is like, it's like unparalleled. It happens throughout history, but famine to the point of cannibalism. You're going to read, it's an awful text in that sense. But then we see the provision of how God provides, of how God comes alongside. So let's look at number one, the problem. Can we pick that up? Verse 24, you guys ready? 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. So afterward, we'll explain that. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, a great famine, as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung, like a quart, I believe, is the size, of a dove's dung was sold for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today. And we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on that day, I said to her, give your son that we made him. It's time to eat your son. Let's go. But she, was hit, but she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer, talking about the king, do you see how this murderer sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? He's right behind him. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? All right, the problem. You're like, what did I just read? I know. I know. This is one of those texts in the Bible. You're like, what is going on here? Um, this is actually something that's not quite uncommon, sadly, during famine. But let's just kind of explain this scenario a little bit. Uh, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, he's like, we're going to besiege. We're going to camp around the, the, the walls of Israel, of Samaria. That's their capital, where the king is, where most of the people are, a very big city. We're going to besiege the city. Basically, what armies would do is we're going to camp outside along the walls. We're just going to wait till they starve to death. We'll either poison their water or make sure you know, resources can't come in, can't get out. We're just going to, we're going to wait here. We're going to bring a lot of supplies with us. We're going to camp as long as we need to until everyone dies, starves or dies. Just crazy. That's basically a, a tactic of war. Not uncommon. So this is what they do. We're going to besiege the city. We're going to hang out. We're going to wait. 
Now, let me explain this. Remember, um, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, what just happened? Like, do you remember that right before this? Him and his army, well, not his whole army, but part of his army, right before this, was just blinded. They're ready to go take Elisha and kill Elisha. Remember, Elisha's servant goes, oh, we're surrounded. And Elisha said in chapter 6, he goes, only if God would open your eyes and you'd see that we're not surrounded. His eyes were opened, Elisha's servant, and he realized, oh, we're not surrounded by an army. They're surrounded by an army, an angel army. I love that because we talked about this idea of it's not all, the things that we see seem real. The things that we don't see are probably more real, more, more realistic. There's so many things that we don't see that we know affect our world today. And he goes, God, open my, thy servant's eyes. So he sees, oh my gosh, we're surrounded by God's army. Oh, we're not going to die today. The king of Syria and his people were blinded. Elisha goes to him. He's like, hey, follow me. He follows him and leads him actually to this king. He leads him to the king of Israel. And he's, basically his eyes are opened. He realizes we're surrounded by our enemies now. We should die. They don't die. This is insane. We, we looked at this last week. Elisha's like, let's throw you a feast. Like, what? Let's throw you a feast, man. They deserve death, but we're given good news, mercy, and we're given a feast. They deserve death, but they are given life. Unbelievable. How would you respond to that? Hopefully, gratefully. Hopefully, the goodness and mercy you just received causes you to live differently, but it didn't. And this is the story of the gospel. We've received insane mercy. We deserve death. We deserve death. God has shown us grace. God does not give us death. He gives us life. He threw us a feast. He said, come sit with me, feast. Now, how do we respond? That is so key. How do we respond? We should hopefully respond in love going, oh my gosh, if I've been forgiven of much, I must forgive much. If I've been shown much mercy and love, I got to show mercy and love. Not the king of Syria. We see, we're not sure in verse 24, but by the way, the way verse 23 and 24 ends, we don't know if it's years, months, days, but he's like, I'm not going to fight you guys. We're good. And he's like, let's go fight him. Something happened. He doesn't respond to grace. Not everyone responds to grace, sadly enough. It's so sad because we go, man, we have the greatest message ever. God in his mercy and his great love with which he has loved us has shown us mercy. And we don't always respond with gratefulness or thankfulness. We can respond like this king. He's like, let's go to war. Let's fight. So he besieges the city. We see him now like turn on them. Now here's what's very, I guess, important in this. Um, remember, I mentioned this before. Israel in the north was not, was not a godly uh, community. They, they weren't like people who like wanted Yahweh. They didn't like love God. They didn't seek God. They served other gods, but God has been time and time and time just gracious to them, prevented war, kept them safe. He's been so good. He's sent them prophets to speak his word to them. God has been so good to Israel in the north, and yet they, they've never really repented or believed on him. Now, I'm bringing this up because sometimes when you read, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God warned them and said, hey, listen, you're going to enter into the land of promise. If you serve me and seek me, I'm going to pour out blessing on you. If you forget me, there'll be curses upon you. This was one of those curses. Let me explain. It's Deuteronomy 28, verse 52. This is interesting. We'll put the verses up here just so you can see it. Uh, God warns them. It says, if you don't serve me, they shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your room, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. God's like, listen, if you don't serve me, if you don't seek me, there will come a point in time. Here's part of the curse. Your enemies will surround you. You trust in the walls. They're going to fail you. And you're going to turn to cannibalism. That's what he tells them in Deuteronomy. This is exactly what happens here. 
They're besieged by their enemies. They're surrounded. They have no food. And they turn to cannibalism. Now, it's weird because, you know, I know it sounds weird. Like, this is not a fun thing to research this week for me, especially. But you're like, okay, I want to read about famines and how famines work and starvation and what this looks like. And, you know, part of me is like, oh, I want to show images. And then I'm like, that's a really bad idea, actually. It's not a good idea. And it's honestly heartbreaking when you read about, like, the modern-day like, starvation that's happening around the world. You know, whether it's in Yemen, it's just like 20 million people are literally just on the verge of starvation. It's just awful. Ethiopia, southern Sudan. There's some parts of the globe that are truly experiencing famine to this level where their bodies are disfigured, deformed, they turn to cannibalism. This is not an uncommon thing. I believe it's also uh, in the 1930s, we saw this greatly with Stalin starving the Ukrainian people and three million died, very similar tactic of war. Three million Ukrainians died through this, essentially, just starvation. You see this happen throughout different centuries. I think it was in the 13th century uh, when England was going through like a famine, they turned to pigeon dung, just like in the story here. So here's the idea. This, this idea of, uh, you know, pigeon dung or dove's dung being sold, sold for five shekels. So it depends. I don't know. It's not the most in interesting, but maybe it's like $50, imagine, for like a cup of pigeon dung. Like you're, you're, you're in such like a hard place. You're like, we have no food. We're starving. What are we going to do? We need food. Okay. Hey, I got pigeon dung. I'll give you 50, you know, 50 bucks for a cup of pigeon poop. That's what it is. Or hey, donkey's head. We, the donkey's already eaten, but you got the head. All right. There's a little bit of meat left on the head. I think it's equivalent to about like 800 bucks for that. Here's the idea. They're experiencing, you know, insane inflation, uh, famine, starving, cannibalism. I know it's something we just read, but I can't imagine being in a moment like that. Go, this is dark. Like, this is wicked. You have moms eating their children. Hey, we'll eat your son. Your son goes first. And then if we eat your son, the next day we'll eat my son. Okay, that sounds great. It's crazy because this, you know, this reminds me of the first king's story with the moms going to Solomon and one of the sons died and they go, Solomon, my son died. No, that's my son. And Solomon has to execute wisdom. This is like its anti-story of that in like this perverted, gross way, going to a wicked king, not a wise king. One of our sons is dead. She promised her son. It's just such a weird, like upside down world. It's not supposed to be this way. It's just wicked. I, can't, I truly can't, I, you know, when you see images of poverty or famine, of starvation, when you see it to this level where people are so hungry, they just, they see anything moving and think maybe that can like satisfy this pain in my stomach. I mean, we can't imagine the depravity that this was for them. Like, this is insane. Obviously, you read it like I read it and you go, ugh. But then we forget, like, no, these are real people who really did turn to cannibalism. And the point is, we don't really know how bad it is. There's, there's just, it's insane. I think I, I want to paint the picture in this way because I want to show how hopeless it is when you turn from God, when you want nothing to do with him, and you'll turn to anything and everything else. And it'll, it never satisfies you, leaves you miserable. I mean, this is so painful to even read about. And so the king sees this, and, and actually I have to point this out. Isn't it crazy this mom, this conversation hey, let's eat your son today. We'll eat my son tomorrow. Then she hit her son. We're not going to really eat you, son. I, I, th these are some of the strangest conversations, but it's crazy to think how death was so common to them. They just became just numb to death. That's what I see here. Like death is just happening all around them. There are certain war-torn countries, like I've mentioned, but you just, you have death is just so common. Bodies just lay in the roads, lay in the streets. For us, we try to like hide it away. It's in a cemetery. We try to dress it up with nice, pretty flowers. Death was just so common, but they're so numb to death. They're so numb to it. Sad to say, I do think we are just, it's sad. I think we are very in a, in a similar spot. I think we are just numb to death. 
I think when it comes to death, we're just numb to it. Like, no big, whatever. We eat my son today, we eat your son tomorrow. That was their mentality. How, this is what we think. We really go, how could they get there? How could they think that? Really? You know, we, we murder over a million babies a year. And we go, how could they ever think like that? How could they be so numb to death? I don't know. I think we're pretty numb to it too. It's crazy how we read stories like this to go, oh, Old Testament scriptures. My, my point is I think that there's a point where we are numb, numb to the things around us, sadly. We're like, we're, just, we're not even aware of it, don't care, it doesn't move us anymore. It's like, I guess we'll eat my son today. But the point for us is like, I guess we'll just, just another, whatever, just another fetus. We try to use different words and titles to not make it, no, it's an image bearer of God that we're murdering. Like, you know, we try to numb ourselves to it. And we are numb to it. I think we need moments where people are like, oh, hey, we've got to wake up. This is, not, this is not okay. I don't care if this is normal. This is not normal. It's happening. Hey, I don't care if this is like normal. You're eating your kids. It's cannibal. This is not normal. The numbness factor that's happening, this is not normal. The king sees this. The king of Israel sees this. And what he says in verse 31 is interesting. He said, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So what does he do? You're the king. Your people are starving. Like, you don't know how bad it is. Like, it's cannibalism. He's probably aware, and some, obviously he's aware, but I don't know if he knows how bad it is. And he's like, sees this story play out. He's like, ah, may God do so to me and more if I don't take off Elisha's head. That's fascinating to me. What does he do? He, he blames someone else. He doesn't go, I'm the king. It's us. We've turned from God. God told us this would happen if we turned from him. Instead, he finds someone else he can blame. He's like, it must be Elisha. Now, it makes sense to him because he goes, Elisha was the guy who brought the enemy into our camp, and he didn't let us kill them. He made us feed them. We fed them, and now look what happened. So in his mind, this is justified anger. Elisha, man, we, should, we had them in our fear. To, like we should have killed them that day. So he's mad at Elisha, not realizing this is the sin of the king and of the people. And so here's what Elisha says. I love this. Verse 32. Elisha says, do you see how this murder has sent to take off my head? He's like, do you see this guy? He's coming to get me. Can you believe that? Hold the door shut. All right. And they come to get him, and there's a captain behind him, and he's speaking too. And here's what he says. Uh, verse 33. He says, uh, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He's like, Elisha, look what we're in. We're in this mess because of God. It's not our fault. This trouble's from the Lord. Why should I wait for him any longer? I, I used to wait for him, that means. Now I don't wait for him. Why should we wait any longer? This trouble's from him. It's not our fault. It's God's fault. We meet people like this a lot. It's not our fault that we're in this mess. If there is God, it, I mean, it has to be his fault. Notice when he says not any longer, I try to put it out this way. Um, this man embraced a utilitarian, a utilitarian view of religion. Basically, he said, I tried it for a little while, but it didn't work. So he says, this, this doesn't work. He goes, why should I wait any longer? Okay, this is a mindset or perspective many people have. I've met many people who's like, I've tried it. It doesn't work for me. I'm like, you've tried what? First of all, and then it's funny how like, I've tried it. It just doesn't work. It's like, no, no. So God didn't do what you wanted him to do when you wanted him to do it. So basically what didn't work was you being God. Not that it didn't work, but God didn't do what you want to do when you wanted to do it. So what didn't work was you thinking you have control and power. He was like, but I've tried it. Why should I wait any longer? It doesn't work. I think this is so important. Um, the psalmist says, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Why should we wait any longer? Elisha's like, I'm good. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. Psalm 40, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. I'd say this, if you've ever come to this place where you're like, God, I've waited for you, but you didn't show up. It's just so interesting. Like, don't, don't throw in the towel. Don't be like, I had tried. It didn't work for me. 
sometimes I really feel like we do have to, and it's so true, when we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God, there's that saying, and so many different authors, authors have wrote that throughout the centuries of like, it's kind of when you realize you have nothing left to give, and you're like, I gave it up. It's like God shows up even in past those points. This is such a dumb story. My son this week, I don't know why this hit me, but he had a little mango stand outside of our house. I thought it was really fun. He, we had like a mango tree. We got all the mangoes. We put a little mango stand out. My son's just funny. Sometimes like, car, you know, he'd wave and they'd drive by. And he's like, Phew. you know, he's mad. He'd wave and smile and drive. I'm like, dude, good job. Like, you're learning rejection. This is great for you. Um, I don't know. I was like, proud. I'm like, keep going. Keep getting rejected. And so he's like, he made up a frivolous number. He's like, only eight more cars, and then I'm going inside. If eight cars don't show up, I'm going in. I'm like, eight? Where'd you? Okay. I'm like, whatever. <coughs> he's counting, what, six, seven, eight. He's like, that's it. I'm done. I'm like, just wait a little longer. He's like, no. I swear to you, the ninth and tenth cars both pull in, stop, and give him money. And I'm like behind him, like, yeah, you see, dad's right. You know, it was just so funny. But it's like, he made up this thing, and like, I can't get, once I come to this, that's my end, I'm done. Why should I wait any longer? It's like, those are the moments you have to wait. The moments you're like, why should I wait any longer? It's like, this is when God shows up. When you come to the end of yourself, you're like, I have nothing left in me. I can't do it. Like, okay, wait, wait. This guy goes, why should I wait any longer? Assuming he did wait at one point in time. But I love it. It's just, he finds it right now in this point. Hey, if there's poverty and suffering, that must be God. If there's disease, sickness, and death, he doesn't blame sin. He blames God. He goes, look what God did. Your God did this. It's crazy to me how when there's issues in this world, we blame God. When things go well, God gets no credit. Oh, there's issues? God. Things are going well? Me. <laughs> it's like so interesting. It's like, wait, why is it not the other way around? Um, but it's so funny. This is what he says. This is what he does. There's a famine in the land. No, it's really interesting in the book of Amos chapter eight. It's fascinating because Amos was a prophet later actually to the north. So to the northern kingdom of Israel, Amos. So keep this in mind. Amos, prophet to the north, later down the road. He talks about a famine to them, which this would probably, oh yeah, our grandparents went through this famine. Here's what Amos says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. They're familiar with that. But not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That's probably a worse famine. He's like, there's gonna be a famine on you, not just of food or water, but there'll be a day when you will no longer hear me speak. I, that's more terrifying. I don't want to relate this too much to our moment in our time, but I do think um, what should freak us out more is like a people's heart turns so far from God they can no longer hear from God. And I, I do think that we, at times we kind of do do that. It's like we turn so far from God, God's like, you think a famine's bad? No, not hearing from me, that's, that's worse. You see, that here's the problem. The problem was, I mean, it's devastation, depravity, disease, death, cannibalism. I mean, it could not, you're, you're surrounded by the enemy eating your children. Can it get worse than that? Here's the problem. And then I love this because at this dark, dark hour, chapter 7, we're going to see the provision, meaning we're going to see how God shows up. And I love this. So the story continues. It doesn't change. Chapter 7, just next verse. Let's keep reading because Elisha's response. So number two, the provision. Here's what's fascinating. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, but Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel. He's basing a lot of food for very cheap at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, so the captain says to Elisha, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. 
This is fascinating. Elisha, okay, remember, they, they're about to kill him. They're breaking his house. He's like, off with his head. They break into his house. And Elisha goes, hey, I have a word from the Lord. We're going to see food, see food sold tomorrow for so cheap. That's just the idea. I can see the size, whatever. But he's just saying, look, at, for a shekel, you're going to get a lot of flour. Right now, it's five shekels for bat poop. For one shekel, you're going to get tons of food. He goes, mark my words. And the captain goes, no, even if God would open the windows of heaven, there's no way this can happen. Like if God has poured out food from heaven itself, this is not going to happen. He goes, oh, okay, you're going to see it, but not experience it. Oh, I can't think of more terrifying word. You're going to see it, but not experience it. That's terrifying. By the way, Elisha's track record is pretty dang good. Like Elisha, like so far, you're like, okay, what he has said has come to pass. What he has done has been done. You know, if there's anyone to say something, maybe, like, maybe we should believe this guy would be Elisha. Like the point is this, this, think about this. There's a faith, there's words that are spoken. It's like, do you believe that? If you believe that, you'll experience it. If you don't, you're not going to experience it. So he's like, and here's the thing. Thus says the Lord. This is so profound to me because he's, he's basically giving them hope. I can't, again, I can't imagine people are eating their own children and goes, hey guys, trust me, tomorrow at this time, one shekel, all the food you want. You'd be like, you're insane and you're inconsiderate and you're unloving. We're eating our own children. How is that possible tomorrow at this time? That makes no sense at all. And it doesn't make sense. You, know, you think about like, yeah, the windows of heaven poured out. I mean, people are, how are we gonna do it for one shekel? Like really that cheap? We're gonna see what happens. Don't worry, just a second. But what I love what he's doing is he's giving them hope. This is so profound. He's, one, he's speaking the words of the God. He's not just giving them a false hope. God never tries to give us hope and not ever fall. Like, if God means to give us hope, it's because he's going to follow through on what he says. God's never like, let me just give you hope, and like, oh, hopefully that'll keep you quiet and shut up. Like, no. When God speaks, it's not because he's just trying to, like, make us feel better. It's because he's actually going to do what he says, and our hope is not an idea. It's not something we're like, Sometimes we use the word like, I hope it happens. And what we mean is like, I don't know, it may or may not happen. The word hope in the Bible has always been different. It's like an assured reality. That's the only way I can put it. If you're like, what is hope in the Bible? It just, it's an assured reality. It's just saying, hey, when, when something is given to you to make you actually have it, like, an, oh, this could actually happen. He said, no, no, if God has said it, it's as good as done. So if God said it, it's going to happen. So here's the idea, because hope is not an idea. Hope is actually a person. This is what I love about scriptures. You see this in the New Testament in Colossians. Hope is a person. So for us, hope is always like, I hope this thing may or may not. We're saying hope is flesh and blood. For us, his name is Jesus. Hope is an assured reality of that. What God has said, it's as good as done. And so he's not just saying it. He's actually giving them this reality, like, it's going to happen tomorrow. And listen, I'll be honest, it makes no sense to me. If you read that and you go, oh, that lady just ate her kid, and you're saying we'll get as much food as we want for a shekel tomorrow, yes. He's not just saying that to make them feel better. He ha- it's based in reality. It's based in God himself. I love, again, what the psalmist says. He says, for you, O Lord, are my hope. You are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. That's so beautiful to me. God, since I was a youth, man, I've trusted you. You're my hope. You are my hope. Hope is a person. And notice how he said this. Elisha said what? Hear the word of the Lord. Hope is rooted in that person's word. Hope is rooted in word, in the word, in that person's word. He says, hear the word of the Lord. My hope is rooted in the word of God. The word of God is not just words. The word of God is a person. 
Jesus is the Word. He is the Lagos. He is the Word that walked among us. So my hope is in the Word, but it's also in the Word, Jesus. And I love this because, listen, hope, he goes, hear the Word of the Lord, and he speaks life over them. Listen, I, we have to, as followers of Jesus, just cling to scriptures. It's not just this false sense of reality. It's an assured reality. When Jesus says, if you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. He says, if he said it, it's, it's, it's assured reality. It's done. You know, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, that is reality. My hope is in his word. It's in a person. And just like Elisha has a good track record, Jesus has a better track record. He's just perfect. He's the word made flesh who walked among us. Elisha's like, let me just give you hope for a moment. I find this fascinating. Here's the thing that frustrates God the most. We'll, we'll follow up on this captain at the very, very end because nothing you could say, um, and now I'll actually use the word angers. Nothing angers God more than unbelief. The wrath of God is poured out actually on unbelief. So I want to keep reading because the person goes, no, no, if God himself would open up the heavens, this can happen. And you go, yeah, I kind of understand. Like people are eating their children. How can uh, we have much food we want for one shekel? So let's keep reading. Verse three, so profound. So he says this, verse three. Now, there were four men who were lepers. I love this like side story, right? You have like this city besieged army restaurant. Here's just four random guys, these four lepers. They're at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. I love the reasoning. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall, die, uh, we shall but die. I love these guys. All right, the lepers. Um, the verse is Leviticus 13, 46. Lepers had to be outside the gate. They're outside the city. They're Israelites outside the city wall. They can't participate in community because they have the skin disease. We talked about leprosy a few weeks back with Naaman. It just ostracized you from the community. Here's four lepers hanging out. That's what you do. If you have leprosy, you just find other lepers. So they're hanging out. They're outside the city walls. They're like, you know what? There's a famine in there. If we go in there, we're going to die. We sit here, we're going to die. We go to the Syrians, we might die, but we might live. I absolutely love I love these guys. I love their logic. I love how they're thinking. They're like, you know what? Let's just go to the Syrians. We're going to die there, die here, maybe live there, probably die, but we might live. That's enough hope for me to give it a shot. Unbelievable. Now, I don't want to get into this too much because I don't, uh, hear me out really quick. I'm sure you've heard of Blaise Pascal. He's a, uh, a philosopher, a Catholic philosopher who wrote some good stuff, some great stuff before. Maybe you've heard of Pascal's Wager. Here's the idea. Pascal's Wager says this, it suggests that it is more reasonable to believe in God as the potential gains of eternal reward outweigh the potential losses of disbelief. By choosing to believe, one stands to gain everything and lose nothing but it presents its belief in God as a pragmatic choice. So here's the thing. You've probably heard of Pascal's Wager. I don't, there's a part of me like, I don't love this, but I can appreciate this. I don't think it's ever good to like be like, well, listen, if I'm wrong, I lived, this is kind of what we do. And it does make sense. If we're wrong, I don't believe we are, that's why I don't like this argument. If we're wrong, what happens? I lived a good moral life. I loved my family. I loved others. I gave sacrificially. I lived for other people. I had a great life, man. If I were wrong, you know what? And we just truly go to nothing. We had a good life. Um, if you're wrong, <laughs> if you're wrong and you don't believe in God and you want to live the life you want to live, I mean, you have everything to lose. You know, like it's, so we're basically saying Pascal's wager is like, it just makes more sense to believe in God and follow him. The reason why I don't love that is like, I don't believe Jesus wants this like pragmatic love. I don't think it's like, well, Jesus, you're better than just hell. Like, I, I don't think it's that. 
I don't love Pascal's wager, but here's what I do appreciate about it. It's basically, listen, this is what they're doing. They're, they're, just, they're using their logic to pursue reality and truth. We're going to die here. We're going to die there. We go to the Syrian army. Most likely they're going to kill us, but we, they might show us grace. This is their way of thinking. Part of me goes, man, at least have the integrity to be honest with yourself. If you are wrong, you do lose it all. If you don't believe in God, you don't believe in Jesus, understand, if you are wrong, you lose everything for eternity. I'm not saying that's a reason to believe, but that's a reason to pursue truth and reality. Do you follow me on that? I'm not saying, therefore, you must believe in Jesus. I'm saying, but at least you go, you know what? Is it, I, you know, I had this quote, I forgot this, but like Arnold Schwarzenegger this week, basically you saw the quote come out, it was like a lot of news media posts. He's like, I think you're stupid if you don't, if you believe in the afterlife. I'm sorry, I don't know why I did Arnold conversation. But <laughs> the thought was, sorry, he was my governor years ago in California. I'm allowed to do that. Um, but the funny thing is like, he basically is like, it's absolutely, he is they're lying to you if people say there's life after death. And I'm like, oh, you're banking, like, you could be leading so many, like, you really want to bank your life on that. There's, you just come to nothing. Do you really believe in your heart of hearts? You breathe your last breath, and that is it. You believe Hitler just killed six million people plus. He commits suicide, and that's it. No, why do we all have this? Like, no, there must be justice. There must be something. Like, why do we have this craving for something eternal? Because there is something eternal. Why do we have this desire for something more? Because there is something more. But my point is, with Pascal's Wager, I don't love it. I don't think it's bulletproof, but I do think it's at least decent to say, don't just stay where you are. They could have just been like, let's just stay here till we die. That phrase of how they say that, I think we put it up here. Why are we sitting here until we die? I love that question. Oh my gosh, that question's amazing. I wish every non-believer would ask that. Why are we sitting here until we die? Why are we here? Like, if we get hit with that existential thought, am I just here to work forever than die? Like, yeah, yes, good job. That, that's such an important question. Why are we sitting here until we die? Like, maybe that's not the point of life. It's just work, then you die. Maybe there is something more. This is so important. And I love that this is like, we'll at least pursue something. We're going to die there, die here, maybe go to them. So you guys with me? I don't know. This is so profound. Jim Elliott said it this way. It's way better than Pascal's wager. Jim Elliott said it this way. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You're no fool. You're no fool to give what you cannot keep. You cannot keep your life, so give it. Because you will gain something you can never lose. It's so much better. That's better than Pascal's wager, man. Good job, Jim. And he did it. Jim did it. You guys know Jim died this way. He gave it all because he can't keep it anyway, so might as well give it. Jim's wager is way better. Um, we'll keep going. Verse 5. So verse 4, like, let's go see. I love this. Verse 5. Here we go. The story gets so good. So we're going to read all the way through verse 15, so bear with me. <clears throat> so they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, listen, there was no one there. What? For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses. Remember that? <laughs> the sound of a great army. They heard that. So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and of the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. I love these lepers. Like, yo, look what we found, this empty camp. Let's go hide it now too and bury it. Uh, then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Verse nine, then they said to one another, 
we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. Everyone say good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Don't forget about that silver and gold you took. Uh, Then the gatekeepers called out, and as it was told within the king's household, so the king gets the news, and the king rose the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, uh, let some men take five of the remaining horses because we ate them all. Uh, let's take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like, those, uh, like, like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. I love this story. So good. They're like, we're going to die here. We're going to die there. Let's go to the Syrians. The lepers go to the Syrians. It is empty Gold, silver, horses, garments, everything's just left as it was. They fled for their lives. God had them here in the middle of the night, them surrounded by those angel armies. Remember, they heard that. Let's run. He must have hired the Egyptians. The Egyptians are here. Yo, their army's nasty. Let's get out of here. They run. They flee. The four lepers are like walking to this ghost town going, oh my gosh, jackpot. This is unbelievable. Look at the spoils of war. Everything's here. Let's take it. Let's hide it. I absolutely love this. They're burying it. They're hiding it. They're taking the stuff. And they said this, what we are doing is not right. We have this amazing news. People are dying over there. We cannot keep this to ourselves. This is a day of good news. We have to get this message out. Look what we have. We have to let people know that we've won. The enemy fleed. He's gone. He lost. We've won a day of good news. Thank you, Jesus, for this story. Thank you, Jesus, for what this implies for us. I love what Adrian Rogers, uh, a pastor, said about this. He says, ours is the greatest mission. Ours is the greatest message. Ours is the greatest master the world knows anything about. Our mission is the great commission. Our message is the saving gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And our master is Jesus Christ himself, who has told us that we ought to take the gospel to every creature here upon the face of of the earth. He goes, we have the greatest message. Because this is what this is what's happening in the lover's heart. They go, we have the greatest message. We have to tell the king of Israel. I love that when the king of Israel, by the way, is like, no, 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 it's a trap. It's a trap. I, I, I love, he's like, it's too good to be true. They're just gonna they're waiting outside, they're gonna kill us. There's no way this is real. Like, and I, I get that. Like I know when it's like, you know, sometimes we hear some news, we're like, no, no, is it free? Mm, no, it's too good to be true. Like so I get that. There's that the thing within all of us. But I love that. Here's the words spoken from these lepers. No, no, we've seen, we've experienced. Come and see. Look, look what we got. We have the greatest message. Here's the thing. Um, The gospel that you and I have truly surpasses this. I I can't even put words to this. What you and I have, being saved from eternal hell, the wrath of God, death, sin, my saved from myself, 
given over to a new life, a new identity, new family, new inheritance, everything we have in Jesus, new promises, new covenant, new love, everything you and I have surpasses the spoils that was left here. It's not even comparable. We have a way better message to say, look at, look at, we literally were faced with death. We deserve death. It's because of our sin. We deserved all of the wrath, and yet we got all the spoils of war. And because of what? Because of what God, see, the, the whole idea of good news is this. You could never accomplish any, even he says if the windows of heaven were open. And I love what God's like, and I'm, I'm actually just going to scare them away. But it's like, this, this couldn't happen. This just is impossible. It's like, yeah, I know. The message of the cross feels that way. You're like, I know, I get it. The message of the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what the Bible says. It, it's, it's so bizarre. We're saying that this man hung and bled and died on a cross and rose again, and now you have eternal life? Like, yes. Just come and see. I don't know what else to... I, no, there's no way. It's a trap. The Christians, they're trying to use us. They want something from you. It's like, and I love the servant. The servant of the king goes, hey, master, let us just come. Can we just take a few horses and go check it out? Like, let us go and see. And he's like, go, go and see. He says, go and see. I, this, is the, this is how the, the whole New Testament began. This is the whole idea. When Jesus rose again, it's like, come and see, come and see. Come and see the place where he lay, for he is not here, for he is risen. It's like, come and see. You need to see this. It's weird because part of me is just, uh, what Christianity is, is like, don't just hear from me. Like, come and explore this yourself. Like, come and see the spoils of war. I can tell you, look at they fled. The enemy lost. We won. It's like, mm, yeah, I've heard that before. It's like, uh, it's like, come and see. Just come and see yourself. That's basically what we're doing here week after week. Come and see. The greatest message, the greatest news. I love what D.A. Carson said. He says, because the gospel is news, good news. Here's the idea. It is to be announced. That is what one does with news. Listen, up here. The essential heraldic, I mean the herald element in preaching, is bound up with the fact that the core message is not a code of ethics to be debated, still less a list of aphorisms to be admired or pondered and pondered and certainly not a systematic theology to be outlined and schematized, though it is properly, properly ground, grounds ethics, aphorisms, and systematics. It is none of these three. Hold on. It is news, good news, and therefore must be publicly announced. Do you hear? The idea is this. We're not so much saying, come and do. We're saying, come and see. We're not saying, here's what it means to be a Christian. Do, 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 do. We're going to say, here's what it means to be a Christian. Receive the spoils of war. Receive what Jesus Christ has done and accomplished for us on our behalf. Look, receive it. Now, yes, with that, there's a responsibility to live a new way. That's what the lepers got. A lot of Christians go, this is great. It's good news. I'll just continue doing what I was doing. No, because this is not good. It's not good to receive this type of news and keep it to yourself. Paul said this way. Actually, write this down in, in the book of Corinthians. Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That word woe is literally cursed. It's like an Old Testament. He's calling upon prophets of old saying, cursed is me if I do not preach the gospel. What we have is absolutely insane. It is not good to keep it to ourselves. It is not good. The danger of church and coming here is making you feel like you did something. You didn't. We come here and we're receiving Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And we have a great message. The danger, the danger is being, being silent. You guys, this is crazy to me because the danger here, please hear me, would be to play it safe. If these lepers didn't go check it out, there's a danger in playing it safe. 
There's a danger in keeping it to yourself. There's a danger in staying silent. They're going, this is not good that we should keep this amazing news to ourselves. And I feel like here's Christians, we can do this. Maybe you finally believed on this message. You go, yes, I received everything Jesus has done for me, so I guess I'm good now. Ugh. This amazing radical grace that has been offered to you is also offered to the world, and you've been sent out as an ambassador of Jesus Christ to go herald this message to the world, to say, it's not about go out and do, it's about go out and receive. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. Let's talk about his death and burial and resurrection. Come and see where he lay. We're basically saying, we want to invite you into understanding that Jesus is not an idea, he's not just a historical figure, that he is God himself who walked among us, who lived a sinless life, a perfect righteous life, and he also atoned for our sin on the cross by his blood. And he rose again a few days later. And on the cross, God placed on my sin and gave me his righteousness. And you receive that in faith. And the idea is believe on that, receive that. And how dare we, he says, keep that to ourselves. This is a day of good news. Look what we've received. We have to tell others what is going on here. I don't care if Christians, if you've heard this analogy before, and I don't care if you're like, oh, I've heard that story. I, I'm going to use it. It's so profound. Years ago, when YouTube was like first the thing, <clears throat> you guys might remember this guy, Pendulette, Penn and Teller. Um, this is like the, probably the first like duo magicians I remember from my childhood. Like, you know, one was like a bigger guy. Then you have Teller, who's a small little guy, and Teller doesn't talk, and you're always like, please talk, Teller. I don't know. If you're, maybe I'm just, I don't know. Maybe for all you young people, like, what are you talking about? Oh gosh. I'm that old. Um, but Penn Teller, man, great duo. It's awesome. Penn, who's an atheist, got on YouTube when it was like first a thing, and he talked about an encounter he had with a Christian after one of his shows. And it was so profound to me. The YouTube video is still there. You can find it. I was going to play it, but I'm not. I'm just going to read to you a quote from what Penn says about this Christian who shared the gospel with him. Okay, Penn, this famous magician atheist, said this. He says, I've always said, hopefully it's up here. I've always said, that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't share what they believe. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me along and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is the, and more important than that. When you hear him describe this interaction with the believer, it's funny. He goes, you know, I've had a lot of people try to witness to me and proselytize to me. He, he likes to use that word. He's like, sometimes they do it terribly, sometimes they do it wrong. It, this, the way he describes it was so cool in this video because he's, it's basically like how to share your faith 101. He goes, this guy was waiting for me after a show. He was polite. He was not weird. He like really stressed that. He was not weird. Christians don't be weird. He's like, he's polite. He's not weird. He just said, he was, he's complimentary. He said, man, I love your show. I've always loved your show. You have such a gift. I love watching you. It's so easy to watch you. He's complimenting him. And he says, I just have a gift for you. I have a little Bible for you. You probably have had one of these before, but I want to give you one because this book changed my life. And he's like, the way he shared and what he shared. And basically what Penn got on to talk about in his YouTube is just saying, I was so amazed by one, how he shared it, the love in which he shared. It was genuine. It was real. I actually feel like he cared more about me than trying to win me to some sort of idea or argument. And it, you're like, you're like listening to this video. I'm like, okay, the thing you know is like how to share your faith. It's unbelievable. This, whoever this guy was like, maybe he's probably just an angel showing us how to do it. I have no idea. But he's like sharing, showing them and sharing the faith 
Penn that night gets up and makes that video and is like, I, I respect that so much. Because you really have to hate people to believe that kind of message and not tell people. That's an atheist calling us out. The reason why I read that, it's so much more weightier when I'm like, yo, an atheist called us out about sharing our faith than me being like, yo, guys, we should share our faith. Like, it's so much weightier when atheists are like, you must hate people if you don't. My point of bringing this up is it's what Penn is seeing, what these lepers are seeing, what Paul is saying in the New Testament. The gospel was never meant to end with you. The gospel, I'm so thankful, was passed down from person to person to person, eventually got to us, and it better keep coming from us. The gospel is something that was accomplished for us by someone else. The gospel is a message that I could never attain or work or be good enough because I'm not good. I'm a sinful, dirty leper who really stumbled upon this amazing treasure that we have, and we have to tell people about it. We have to. And that my hope is for us is not so much to be like, here's ways to do it. Fall in love with the gospel, what Jesus Christ has done for you, and let it just overflow out of your life that way. Just like, oh my goodness, look at what Jesus has done for me. Find ways to just make it natural. We're doing this Mission Life course on Wednesdays. We just started. It was so awesome. I honestly am so blessed to see like 40, 50 people in this room saying, I want to get better at sharing my faith. It's, it's the start. It's not everything. It's something. But my point is, I want that for us. Like, how do we grow in this? It's June. We're almost going to be in Alpha, you know, in September and October. This is the time to start praying for your neighbors, thinking of people by name. It's not even about Alpha. It doesn't have to happen there. That's just a way. My point is, like, we have to be proactive. We have a wonderful message. Let us get it out. He goes, we cannot keep this to ourselves. What we're doing is not right. This is a day of basara, of good news. We have to share this. Amen? I love this. The king's like, it's a trap. The servant, verse 13, let us send and see. Let us go for it. We need to find out. Here's how it ends. Verse 16, we'll end with this story because it, it begins here and it ends here. Look at verse 16. <sighs> so fascinating. Then the people went out and they plundered the camp of the Syrians. So all of Israel gets to go. So a sea, a fine flour, was sold for a shekel and two seas of barley uh, for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Remember Elisha? I just can't imagine Elisha's face like, see that? One day later, like, like told you. Unbelievable. <clears throat> it says, now the king had appointed the captain. Remember the captain? on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people, when they opened the gates, go besiege the city, go take over, take all the stuff. The people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said, when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seas of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a sea of fine flour for a shekel, about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make the windows of he in heaven, uh, could such a thing be? And he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. So crazy. He's like, you're going to see it, but not experience it. He sees it. Uh, it really is empty. The treasure's there. Gate's open. Trampled on die. He, he saw it, but didn't experience it. Here's the thing. Let that not be us. Let us not see it. Let's not go, we hear the cross, we hear the resurrection, we hear everything Jesus has done, but we never embrace that for ourselves. That we get trampled, we miss out. We assume we will have years ahead. We'll live a lot longer, I'll decide later. Like we assume so much. Here's the thing, the thing that obviously angered the heart of God, and I really do mean like angered, because like, I do think the greatest sin that there seems to be in scripture is the sin of unbelief. The thing that made him upset was even if God were, basically God could never do that. You said this would happen. There's no way. God said it. He did not believe it. His unbelief led to his death. 
this is the story of the scriptures. God says something, you either believe it or you don't. Hebrews 3.12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily what is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He goes, Beware, lest any of you have an evil heart of unbelief. The danger in all of this whole story is, is not believing in something God has said. Hey, we won. The enemy, they, they ran away. The spoils of war are there. There's no way. No way. You're not going to receive that. Church, here's what I want to say. God has made it so simple. How cool is this? God's not like, you want, you want eternal life? Go climb Mount Everest. Give me every cent you have. God's like, you want eternal life? Receive. Believe. Be- what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? Believe on him whom the Father has sent. What must we do to work the works of eternal life? Believe on him whom the Father has sent. This is what we see in the New Testament. Repent and believe on Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10, all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe that? If you believe that, it's like, come on in. If you don't, that nothing breaks or hurts or upsets or angers the heart of God more than unbelief. It's the garden sin. It's the first mom and dad sin. Did God really say? Maybe God didn't say. It's unbelief that has pushed man away from God. If you believed, they experienced. If you didn't, you died. My thing is this. Listen, God has made it simple. God is like, I'm so good. I'm not trying to make this hard. All you have to do is believe. Believe and you'll be saved. That is good news. I'm not trying to make it tricky. I'm not trying to make it hard or difficult. I just want you to believe. Call upon the Lord. You'll be saved. Thank you, Jesus. It is so sweet that you finished it. You paid it all. All to you I owe. I believe this. I receive this. Here's what I want to say, guys. This is a day of good news. Amen? I just want to worship and say thank you for this good news. And then, with this in mind, this is not right if we keep it to ourselves. We have to go. We have to invite. All right? Let us worship Jesus. We have to close out by saying thank you, Jesus, for this good news. We have to posture our hearts now to not just say, I believe it, but I believe in my heart. I don't just believe it intellectually. He says, if you believe in your heart, I believe with everything I got, Jesus, that you are Lord, that you were raised from the dead. This is a day of good news. Father, we just want to say thank you for your son, Jesus. There's no one like you. Jesus, you have the name above all names. Jesus, at your name, we are saved. At your name, Jesus, the name, meaning what you have done for us on our behalf, we just receive that and believe on that. And just, we want to say thank you, Lord. Help us not to walk in unbelief. Help us not to hear this and dismiss it and say, too good to be true or it's a trap. Help us, Lord, just to hear this message and say, yes, thank you. You paid it all. Lord, why are we going to just sit here and die? We don't want to, we just want to think like those men. Lord, we want to consider the outcome. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are the solution, that you are everything, that you don't just want us to believe intellectually, but you want our hearts, you want our lives. So, Lord, I just ask for everyone in this room that, Jesus, we could just turn to you, get our eyes fixed on you. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. And we just want to say thank you, Jesus. You are so good. We just want to worship you now in your name. Amen. Let's just stand and sing to Jesus.